Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help com slash sacred text. Chapter 17, The Four Champions. Harry sat there aware that every head in the great hall had turned to look at him. He was stunned. He felt numb. He was surely dreaming. He had not heard correctly. There was no applause. A buzzing, as though of angry bees, was starting to fill the hall. Some students were standing up to get a better look at Harry as he sat, frozen, in his seat. I'm Matt Potts. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, our only announcement today is that, everyone, you have four days left to get your early bird special on camp. So if you want a reduced rate to come to our summer camp, go now to NotSorryWorks.com. We really want to see you there. Matt especially, he keeps talking about it. I can't wait to see everyone there. I know. This week for our Every Flavor Bean conversation, we are going to discuss uh, unwanted selections. Times (laughs) when we have been... Asked or forced or coerced into participating in things that we didn't really want to participate in, but still cared a lot about our selection. Think elementary school kickball, playground sort of antics. That's our discussion this week. So if you want to hear embarrassing stories from my and Vanessa's childhoods, join our Patreon and you'll get bonus content like our Every Flavor Bean. Uh, But If you don't, we're so happy to have you here and to hear our embarrassing content all through the episode today. (laughs) Because our theme, Vanessa, is embarrassment. And you have a story about embarrassment for us. I can't wait to hear about how you have been embarrassed in the past. My story is actually embarrassing for you and not for me. What? (laughs) So a couple of years ago, your wonderful, brilliant wife, Colette, had a book come out called Love First, and it was wonderful. 
And I drove down to your house on Cape Cod to go to her book party. And I was lucky enough to sit across from your parents at this picnic that was celebrating Colette's book. And I was very excited to meet your parents for the first time. And so I... I'm just a jerk of a friend. So I looked at them and I said, so tell me embarrassing stories about Matt. And your dad sort of lit up with excitement to maybe tell me a story, but got interrupted by your lovely mother who said to me with utter sincerity and confidence that you never embarrassed yourself as a child. And then began to list things that I w- was embarrassed for you. <laughs> they were things like, Matt was always a very good and very serious child. I'm like, well, that's sad. And then Matt wanted to be a priest from very young. And then started telling stories about how you were ambitious to be a priest at the age of five. And the reason that I'm telling this story on embarrassment is twofold. One is that your mother passed away a couple of weeks ago now. And I wanted to honor her on this podcast and her love for you. And I think it's a, a an important story about embarrassment because embarrassment really is in the eye of the beholder. And your mother loved you so much that you could have done anything and she would just never have found anything that you ever did embarrassing. And I love you a lot, but I think a lot of the things that you do are embarrassing. (laughs) And so I don't think it's just that love makes things not embarrassing. I think that you can love a child and be embarrassed for them. But there was something about the way that your mother loved you that she could not possibly see anything you had ever done as embarrassing. And I think that that speaks to how special of a person she was. And I also think that that speaks to the relativity of embarrassment. Thanks, Vanessa. And thanks for remembering my mom, who did die a couple of weeks ago. She'd been sick for a long time. And although, you know, we're very sad to have lost her, she went peacefully and she's at peace. And so it's it's okay. Yeah, I think I read the situation differently than you. I, I mean, you're right. She did not realize that what she was saying was embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But I love the eye of the beholder thing, because that's exactly what I was thinking when you were telling the story, which is like my mom would start listing things, which she would say, like, here are all the things I'm proud of, uh-huh. which, depending upon who she's talking to, <laughs> would be like, oh, thank you for telling me the list of embarrassing things that I was waiting for. <laughs> yeah. right? I was like, oh, my God, this is a treasure trove. <laughs> I, there were things that she was embarrassed of about me. Right. But she was also just a super, super protective. Yeah. And also, I think Japanese culture is is so deeply shame-based mm-hmm. and honor-based. I mean, depending upon whether you look at it positively or negatively, I don't think there's a situation in which she would have willingly said something that she thought I would think was embarrassing to sure. anybody, even a close friend like right. you, right? And certainly not for herself, right? And so she thought her job in that moment is to hold that stuff in because I'm not going to embarrass Matthew. Right. right. I don't want him to be embarrassed. And so here's a list of things, all the things he should be proud of mm-hmm. and that everyone would be proud of, mm-hmm. which are all the embarrassing <laughs> things, right? Whereas my dad is, you know, my dad is different. My dad wants to tell a funny story. Twinkle in his eye. Yeah. yeah. I can I can tell you the story that he would, <laughs> probably the first story he would have told. And my mom probably could too. And my mom was just like, nope, got to butt in here. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> keep everything protected, keep it all inside. Interesting etymology with embarrassment. Yes. This was one of the, like, the richest and most interesting etymologies that I've discovered in the course of the podcast. So mm-hmm. embarrassment, the bar in the middle of embarrassment, comes from the word like to bar, to prevent or to block or to hinder. Like to en- enable something is to make capable or make able. To embar was to prevent. And somehow in the early 19th century, this idea of prevention got associated with the emotional experience of being embarrassed where you couldn't do anything, I guess, right? So that feeling became a block. The reason I bring it up with respect to your story is that, like, my mom sort of blocked my dad from telling (laughs) telling the embarrassing (laughs) thing and said all the other things, which were actually embarrassing. So all the, the embarrassment was freely flowing, despite my mom's intentions. Okay, Matt, should we remind people what happened in the chapter? We should, but instead, we're going to do 30-second recaps. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that works, too. I'm flexible. (laughs) On your mark, get set, go. So Harry's name has been selected, and Hermione's like, go, and he goes, and he stands, he goes in, and and Victor and Cedric and Flora are there, and Flora's like... Do we have to compete with this little boy? And she, and Harry's like, what little boy? And then the teachers are in, or maybe they're already in. And Dumbledore's like, did you? And he's like, no, I didn't. And they're like, did somebody else do it? And Moody's like, of course they would because they want to kill him. And then Harry says, oh, crap, somebody does want to kill me. And he goes back to the common room and everyone's excited except Ron up in, up in the dormitory because Ron thinks that Harry did it in his mess. Yeah, Ron, yeah. a jerk in this chapter. This is something we need to talk about. Yeah, I know. I feel for him. First, we have a 30-second recap. I do. Three, two, one, go. So Harry is going to be one of the champions. Oh, my God. And he doesn't even get up because he's like, this must be wrong. And then Dumbledore is like, Harry, please come. And so he goes back and everybody is like, what the heck? How is this possible? And Ludo Backman is like, yes, chaos. And Crouch is like, "Uh, I guess we have to follow these rules. I don't understand why. And then Moody comes back and is like, someone is trying to kill Potter. Secretly, he's whispering to himself, it's me. And then um, (laughs) Harry goes upstairs and all the Gryffindors are so excited except Ron. I feel like we, together, we probably gave a little bit too little, a little bit too little Mm -hmm. attention to the reception in the Gryffindor common room. But apart from that, I think this was an, an excellent example of teamwork. Yeah, I think we did Because I forgot Barty and, and Ludo and you hit them. Mm. And one thing I thought was really interesting at the beginning, you and I went against type and you talked about Dumbledore yes. calling Harry back and I talked about Hermione sending him back. Oh, Isn't that great? Yeah, I love that. What a team. We really are a team. So Matt, I feel like Let's start with the big thing, which is that Harry is mortified and horrified and shocked that he has been called as one of the champions in the Four Wizard Tournament. I think it's actually a really great example for us to explore embarrassment because I want to know when or even if his emotions become embarrassment throughout the chapter, mm. right? Like, I, I don't think the word embarrassment is used in the chapter no. or embarrassed. But obviously, a lot of the experiences he's having, we might read as embarrassment. Totally. But all those words you used, which I think are closely associated with embarrassment and maybe overlapping with embarrassment, mortified, shocked. It says he's numb at the beginning. He Mm. obviously feels like the center of attention. They could all indicate embarrassment, but they don't need to, right? Like, if we just start right at the beginning, 
you know, the lines I read to open the chapter, he was stunned, he felt numb, he was surely dreaming. I could think back of moments of my deepest embarrassment in the moment, and those sentences could be used to describe me, right? Yes. So that may be what's going on with Harry, but he also just might be stunned and numb and not not really registering this yet. So I, I don't know. What do you What do you think? I agree with all of that. The moment that I think that he is officially embarrassed is when he walks into the Gryffindor common room. And specifically, I'm Mm. thinking about the moment in which, so Lee Jordan has tied a Gryffindor flag around Harry's shoulders, and Harry goes upstairs to his dorm room, and Ron is up there, and Harry realizes that he's wearing this Gryffindor flag. And I think that that is the moment where he is embarrassed. And I think that that's something else, right, is that something can be fine in one context and then mortifying in another, right? Like if Harry had just won the Quidditch World Cup and came upstairs in the Gryffindor flag, Ron would have been like, that's awesome. And downstairs, while everyone was celebrating him, including some very gracious celebrations, from Angelina and Fred and George, all of whom sort of failed, right? Like, he wasn't embarrassed. He wouldn't have chosen to wear the Gryffindor flag, but he wasn't embarrassed about it. But having this conversation with Ron, who's having a certain set of thoughts, suddenly, right, like, instantaneously, this this flag becomes embarrassing. Yeah. I think that's really right. And it opens up, like, all these different possibilities and meanings for what embarrassment is. It's something about Harry's interpretation of what others are seeing about him, right? Like, that's where embarrassment comes from. It's it's about your perception of others' perception of you, right? Like, in the Gryffindor common room, he's frustrated that no one's listening him, to him or believing him, mm-hmm. right? Like, you can tell from the text that no one believes him. They're all asking him how he did it, how he did it. And he keeps saying, like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah. But the attention is all positive. Yeah. Like they all are cheering him on and think it's great that he figured out a way to do it and are are happy to have him representing Gryffindor, even if he did skirt the rules to do so, in their opinion. And so, like, he's frustrated in this moment and feels unheard or even ignored because people aren't paying attention to what he's saying, but not embarrassed. But when he goes upstairs and he sees the one person who is not excited for him, right, who thinks it was wrong for him to do this. That you're right. Then he crosses a threshold where it's the, actually the same experience. People don't believe me. Right? right. But they don't believe me and they love it versus they don't believe me and they're judging me for it. Then yeah. that frustration is also embarrassment. Then he's like, why do I have this banner on? I look like I like it. I look like I'm proud of it. I look like I'm celebrating it, which I'm not. I'm misunderstood in a different way. Right. Like not only like my actions, but my intentions are being misunderstood by by Ron. And you're right. A threshold is crossed there from all those other emotions that can go with embarrassment, like frustration and feeling ignored. It crosses over into also embarrassed, which means like there is something about like this kind of reciprocal empathy that has to go on. Like you have to be able to imagine yourself and the other person and see what they're seeing and not like what they're seeing. (laughs) Right. Which is what happens with Ron and why it becomes embarrassment. Yeah, I think that's that's right. That's really smart. I'm really interested in the relationship between embarrassment and anger. I think often when I feel embarrassed, I get mad. But Karkarov and Maxime, I would imagine that part of what they're feeling is embarrassed, right? They have come all of this way in their ship and their flying carriage, and they have, like, brought these students, right? They they have other students back at their schools that they are not currently managing those schools. 
They have decided to participate in the what they thought would be the Triwizard Tournament. You know, and we find out from Karkarov that, like, mm-hmm. there were negotiations. There was a yeah. contract, and they went back and forth, and there are a lot of terms that were agreed over slowly and quite painstakingly. And I think that part of what was negotiated was a kind of home court advantage for Hogwarts, right? Like, mm-hmm. Hogwarts is already at an advantage by the school hosting this and the their champions sleeping in their own beds, all the things that I think we rightfully equate with that home court advantage. And then there's this trick of Hogwarts getting two champions, of Harry in, in being selected means that not only is Cedric Diggory one of the champions who can compete in the Triwizard Tournament, but that Hogwarts has two opportunities. And Kakarov is just like, oh, did I misunderstand the contract? Did I not read it closely enough? And this anger at the feeling of potentially being taken advantage of seems to me to at least be a cousin of embarrassment. Yeah. I think that's right. And I mean, all the moments I saw embarrassment in this chapter accompany anger. Yeah. And I hadn't seen embarrassment with Kakarov and Madame Maxime, but I think you're absolutely right. I think there's embarrassment there also. And the anger or the frustration or the kind of impatience that they show, even the advocacy, like in those moments where they're like, well, we got to do something else. We have to have two or or whatever, or we have to call it off or whatever. You can see them feeling like my responsibility is towards my school and my students, and I have not lived up to it because somehow I got taken advantage of by this system or by this headmaster or by this ministry. And and so they're tra- they feel anger, but that and that anger and that advocacy is closely associated with them feeling like some failing of theirs has been revealed, right? right. We did not make them adhere to the contract. We didn't, you know, suspect that they would skirt the contract in this way and the anger accompanies that. And you see it in the, the original example that we started with of or that you started with of of Harry and Ron, which is yeah. like Harry feels embarrassed in that moment, but he gets testy really quick, mm-hmm. right? He He's angry with Ron for not believing him in a way that he wasn't angry. He was frustrated with the folks not believing him downstairs. Right. But he's, you can see already in this moment, him saying, maybe not in so many words, but saying to Ron, like, of anybody, you ought to believe me. You know me best. You know I wouldn't do this. Why are you the one, or why are you among the ones who can't believe me and are taking it? this different way, right? You can see the anger rising up in Harry, which is associated with his embarrassment. Because, you know, in terms of the thing I said before about this reciprocal empathy, like he does recognize what Ron is thinking and it's wrong and it and he's and he's mad about that, right? Like you should see me the other way. Like now I have to feel embarrassed because you have the wrong idea. I mean, it's also, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. I think that when Ron realizes what's going on, he's going to be embarrassed later because he realizes right. that, he had the wrong idea, right? That embarrassment's not going to be accompanied by shame. It's being accompanied by other feelings, regret or sadness, which also go along with embarrassment. But I think you're right. Anger absolutely arises with it because it, if embarrassment indicates some disconnect between how you think you ought to be perceived and how you understand others as perceiving you, that's going to generate some emotion, right? And anger is often going to be one of the emotions. I'm also just thinking about anger in conversation with the etymology that you gave in the story about your mom. Of sometimes I feel like I get angry when I'm embarrassed that no one is protecting me. This, like, I'm alone here and I shouldn't be is part of the anger, right? 
And yeah, yeah. And I think Harry went upstairs thinking Ron is going to be the person pr- who protects me. Ron is going to be the person right. who's going to go downstairs and advocate for me and be like, Harry wouldn't do that. He would have told me. Yeah. And instead, yeah. it's this other thing. And I think that that, that is one of the conditions in which yeah. embarrassment becomes anger when you feel totally alone in it. And that yeah. feeling of, I shouldn't be alone. Someone stand up with me. Yeah, I think when he's down in the common room being feted by the Gryffindors, you know, the text says he's looking for Ron and Hermione. He doesn't know where they are, where they disappeared to, right? And he goes up to bed because he wants to get away from all this attention, even though it's positive attention because it's frustrating, though not embarrassing, right? And when he finds the person who's supposed to pull him out of that, that disconnect is exactly what's, yeah, what's going on. I had said before that I thought that maybe his frustration or his experience crossed the line over into embarrassment at another point in the chapter. Mm -hmm. And I think it's also one where it's closely associated with anger. Mm -hmm. So this is after Harry has been called into the back room because he's been selected. And at first, it's just him and the other three champions. And the other three champions seem confused because they know that he's too young to be entering. So they're like, what are you, like the errand boy? Did you come to get us and (laughs) call us back? Which seems really interesting to me. I mean, just because everybody knows he's Harry Potter, the boy who lived. Right. And when they first saw him at the school, at least the Durmstrongs were all like fascinated by the fact that he is the boy who lived. Right. But when he walks in this back room, they're just like, who are you, the errand boy? Like, they they don't care that he's Harry Potter. Now they're just like, we're the champions. Do you do you need something? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right. Do you want my autograph? (laughs) That's right. And then the teachers show up and they start investigating and Bagman and and Crouch show up. And Fleur kind of calls out to, to Madame Maxime and says, uh, they are saying that this little boy is to compete also, mm-hmm. right? And then the line in the text is somewhere under Harry's numb disbelief, he felt a ripple of anger. Mm-hmm. Little boy, right? And so, like, this is, remember how I was saying in the beginning, like, there's numb disbelief. Is that embarrassment? Might be. He knows it's the center of attention. Often embarrassment comes from a lot of people giving you attention that you don't want. He's getting all that. And so he may be feeling embarrassment beforehand, but in this moment when she calls him a little boy, it kind of spills over into somebody has the wrong idea about me, right? Which accompanies anger. Although, obviously, Harry is a really mature 14-year-old, right? And is capable of competing with these of-age wizards, as the rest of the text will bear out. But I think the other thing about this line is that, like, it feels a little too true to Harry, which is Mm -hmm. why he feels embarrassed, right? On his walk back to the Gryffindor common room, and he's reflecting upon his participation. He's like... Oh no, these people have three more years of wizarding study than I do. <laughs> they're all they all seem a lot larger than me. Yeah, he's like, they're all so tall. I know. And he was like, I had a I, of course I fantasized about joining this, but I actually did not want to join this and I am scared to be in it now. Like he feels trapped and he does feel a little bit out of his depth or underwater or over his head or whatever <laughs> phrase you want to use. So like part of the anger is like he does not want to be seen this way by Fleur. But also, he worries that it might be a little bit true, and that's where the anger comes from and the embarrassment comes from. It's Here, it's not the disconnect about being seen the wrong way. I think there's a, l- there's a little bit of embarrassment at maybe being seen in a slightly too accurate way. <laughs> totally. Which is the form of embarrassment that I think I hate the most, where you suddenly see yourself through someone's eyes in the worst possible light, right? We were talking about embarrassment 
you know, being contextual, there are things that you do alone that are not embarrassing. And then as soon as someone else is in the room, especially the wrong person in the room, it's humiliating. And I think that the problem with being embarrassed in the way that Harry is in that moment is that the negative self-talk that we do when it comes out of someone else's mouth, right? Like that is the most embarrassing thing. And so Harry being you know, Harry's been small in comparison to Dudley his whole life. He feels as though he has gone through a lot of trials for someone so young and feels as though he has to be like, excuse me, I've actually had a lot of life experience. It's also, I'm sure, painful for a 14-year-old boy to hear this from, like, an older girl who he finds attractive, right? Like, yeah, right. all of these things, when when the bad thing you think about yourself is expressed by someone else. I mean, that is the most infuriating form of embarrassment. Yeah, right. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. We were talking about Madame Maxime's and Karkaroff's frustration and their sense of embarrassment that maybe they have not been the right kinds of advocates for their schools or their students. Um, I think, you know, I think the Hogwarts staff should probably feel some embarrassment. We don't have a clear signal that they do feel embarrassment here. But, the, you know, they. how is this possible? Like, it, seems like, it seems like they should be able to figure out how to keep an underage wizard. If it's that dangerous, if these are the stakes and this is what was negotiated, Karkarov and Maxima are right. Like, they should be able to figure out how to keep 
a person from entering. Like, if it's really as easy as anybody who is old enough can throw in an underage wizard's name, that's a super big gap in the plan. And that's kind of embarrassing that for all their magical power and ability that they didn't see that big, they didn't imagine that big loophole. And now we're getting to, like, into the kind of weeds where others besides Dumbledore might not be aware what's going on. But especially if what Sirius Black has said in the last chapter about Dumbledore is true, that Dumbledore worries that that Harry may be targeted by someone, like, you should have some better some better precautions, like some other defenses, right? Or, or like, oh yeah, make everyone hand the slip to McGonagall first, <laughs> and McGonagall throws them in instead of like, oh well, no one's watching in the middle of the night. Anybody can put one in, but don't worry, we have this line, age restriction line. That seems, I don't know. I I mean, maybe they don't have security cameras in the magical world. Also. Right. Just, like, try. <laughs> See what happens if Harry doesn't participate. Like, I really don't right. understand this feeling. It is the feeling that I look at leadership with the most when they're disappointing me, which is, like, how yep. are you not ashamed of yourself, right? Like, how are you not embarrassed by this inaction? Yeah. And the thing that I respect the most when leadership sort of comes through. Yep. And— yeah, I don't, there doesn't seem to be embarrassment. Like, Ludo Bagman is like, this is awesome. Barty Crouch is like, understandably distracted, but isn't resisting in any way. He's like, I don't know. That's what the law says. Yeah. And I think that the problem is that they are not looking at this child, at least not closely. They're not yeah. like, oh my God, this kid is terrified. Yep. And I think if you just look at the people that you're impacting, Hmm. you would be embarrassed. I guess the other thing that I'm thinking about is that there are times that embarrassment is a little bit productive because suddenly you see yourself, whatever it is, through a child's eyes and you're like, oh my God, right? Sometimes I think like, you know, you often hear stories about people leaving notes on windshields when they've accidentally grazed someone in the parking lot and they'll leave a note being like, people are watching me, so I'm leaving a note. But also, people actually leave real notes sometimes just because they're yeah. being watched, right? Yeah. And there's just something too embarrassing about driving off. And I yeah. I wish that there was, like, a sense of integrity that always got me to do the right thing. But sometimes it is, like, just the fear of embarrassment that gets me to do the yeah. right thing. And you would think this group of people was, like, in front of our students, it is embarrassing to let this happen. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we get to Havruta, I think that's this is around the constellation of questions that I want to, to talk about. The thing that along these lines that what we can say for right now or what I want to say for right now is like the other thing that is just kind of embarrassing is the absolute lack of imagination or creativity yeah. among these leaders to think of a solution, right? Like the, the goblet's rules are so irrevocable. That they were like, well, I guess Harry just has to participate and do his best in every task, right? Instead of thinking like, oh, actually, there was a really big loophole that allowed <laughs> him to be entered. Maybe there are some loopholes going forward that can allow us to, like, functionally make it him not participate, right? Like, right. there's no rule. Like, we talked about this last week. There's no rule that you have to try your hardest, right? right. They could have Dumbledore go out in the first task and have the... The whatever the whistle blow or whatever, and mm-hmm. it starts, and then Harry just quits. Drinks a cup of tea after one second. That's right. Just says like, okay, I, I started this 
And and then you say that to the other heads of school. You say that to Kargrav and Maxime, like, listen, we don't know why this happened, but it's not going to be rewarded. Whoever did this to Harry, even if you think Harry did it to himself, we're not going to reward this behavior. There are easy ways where we can make him, like, quote-unquote, participate because he's obligated to, but he can just bow out after two seconds and let the other three do their thing, and then we preserve the integrity of the competition. They just seem like, well, I guess we're helpless before the rules of this thing. I mean, Barty Crouch, too, and as you say, Barty Crouch has reason to be distracted, which we will learn later, but all of them are like, I guess all we can do is follow these rules, which are underwritten and have very wide scopes of interpretation, but our interpretation is the only one that binds us, and there we go. And that just seems like, try harder. <laughs> it's embarrassing, really. It is. And that's the kind of embarrassment I feel, right? When someone who, for whatever reason, has a little bit less power than I do, looks at me and is like, why aren't we doing it this other way? I'm like, wow, that is embarrassing. That is correct. We should be doing it that way. Whatever it is, yep. right? Like, I'm the driver, and the person in the passenger seat is like, why don't you just park here? And it's like, oh, because I didn't see it. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Like, I value those moments of embarrassment, right? Because you're like, oh, now I found a parking spot. And I just don't understand why this this large group of adults, like, no one is thinking it. And again, I think actually this gets to, you know, the no one is tipping them off, right? There's this reciprocal. They're all looking at each other and like. None of them are tipping each other off that this should be embarrassing. If one yeah. person was embarrassed, they would all be embarrassed immediately. Yeah. But no one is signaling to them in this room that they are making yeah. a mistake. Yeah. I think a lot of the folks who aren't embarrassed, like Snape, for example, thinks it's not the teacher's fault because they think it's Harry's fault. Right. Right? Harry's the one that ought to be embarrassed because Harry did wrong. So now he has to pay the consequences or whatever, or do what he, right? Like, I think it's th- that's part of the, the failure is that they're not taking responsibility for this child who is their responsibility, as opposed to the other heads of school who are actually trying to take care of their students in their objection to this this breach of the rules. Or not breach of the rules, fulfillment of the rules, exploitation of this loophole. Yes. Okay, Vanessa, this week we are doing Havruta, and Havruta is a practice where I ask a question and answer it, and we kind of talk about the question and the answer, and we hope, I hope, that it stirs a question in you that you'll also offer an answer to. And so here's my question, which I think our theme conversation might have modified a little bit, but I'm going to stick with it. Great. And just in my answer, expand upon it. My question is, why doesn't anybody believe Harry? (laughs) I mean, Dumbledore and McGonagall believe Harry. think they believe Harry, but they also know something fishy is going on. But, like, nobody else does. I mean, Snape obviously doesn't. None of the other teachers do. It doesn't seem like it. At least none of the teachers in the back room. Karkarov and Maxime, they're right to be suspicious for other reasons, right? But I think especially, like, everyone at Hogwarts. Like, no one believes him, including Ron. Like, including the person who ought to believe him. Harry's right. Ron ought to be the one to believe him. And that's what's so frustrating and sometimes embarrassing for him is that he's he's seen the wrong way. And I think the reason why nobody believes Harry is because they believe he is Hogwarts's champion. They have heroicized him since the moment he arrived at school. Since before that, the legends of him abounded for the first 10 years of his life until he arrived at school as an 11-year-old. And at every stage, I think everybody in the school has been not letting him be a kid. 
it, from different directions. You know, Snape does it with frustration. Other people do it with too much pressure. But it's always like, oh, no, you are the one. You are the boy who lived. You are the one. There's a little bit of a kind of, of course, she'll be the champion because you're the boy who lived. And you have defeated Voldemort a few times now. And of course, you are going to be the one who, if anybody's going to rise up and be the representative of Hogwarts, find a loophole and be our champ- the champion of our school, it's got to be the boy who lived. And so, like, they already kind of believe it, which is why they don't believe it when he says he didn't, which is a different version of everything we were just saying about their mismanagement and lack of imagination in trying to keep him from competing, which is that I think that even Dumbledore and maybe McGonagall, it's, I think she's, this is less true of her, but McGonagall does see Harry as the one. And so he, instead of thinking and imagining ways that Harry might be allowed to not participate or kept from participating, he just thinks, well, Harry can do it. <laughs> Harry's fine. Harry should compete and Harry will go on. And it's, it's all the wrong stuff. It's all the wrong stuff. They shouldn't be doing it. But that's my answer. My question is, why doesn't anybody believe him? And I think it's because they have a deeper belief that he actually is their savior figure. And, and so they want to believe it of him, even if he doesn't want them to. Well, Matt, I don't totally disagree with you. Just mostly. Yeah. I mean, like, I think if Colin <laughs> Creevy went back there, they'd be yeah. like, what the heck? And they would be looking at this differently. So I do right. think the fact that right. it's Harry Potter, the Harry Potter, m- makes a difference. But I also think it's because it is easier to believe that it was one person than there is actually something sinister afoot. Yep, that's true. And, you know, we could say, like, Occam's razor, maybe they're right to look at the world in that way. But I also think that we don't, and I like this is something that I do all the time, we just, like, don't want to believe that there's something sinister, that there's actually something really bad happening. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the Proud Boys cutting off electricity to a lot of people in North Carolina. And I was just thinking, right, like if I was in one of those houses, it would not occur to me. I'd be like, oh, the electricity's out. It'll come back on, right? I think it would take me a really long time to believe this other truth that is slightly more complicated, but just more sinister. And we as a society, and I think this is because of powers that be, Train people that, like, you're being paranoid if you think something bigger is going on, you know? Of course your water is clean enough to drink. Like, stop complaining and drink your water. And these are, like, white people with a lot of power, and the world has served them. The powers that be have always served them. And so it's just not occurring to them that maybe for the first time the powers that be are actually trying to undermine them. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's a huge part of it. And I— and I think that's a great read because I think the place where my explanation fails is with Dumbledore because Dumbledore does right. believe Harry. Right. And he also does believe something is afoot. He does believe sinister powers are, right? And, but he also has this lack of imagination. And actually, I mean, you alluded to this in, I think, your 30-second recap. Barty Crouch Jr. slash Mad-Eye Moody totally takes advantage of the human kind of hesitance to see the sinister, to mm-hmm. recognize the possibility of the sinister. By basically describing his exact plan right. to everybody in the room, <laughs> knowing that by doing so, they will dismiss it. Right. <laughs> right? That that they'll be so disinclined to believe it's 
real, especially coming from someone who has a reputation for paranoia, like Mad-Eye Moody, that if in the character of Moody he describes this plan, everyone will immediately take it off the table. Right. And it's, and it's just for the reason you say, which is, which is that no one wants to believe that's true, and they will do their darndest to avoid believing it's true. Yeah, it's just reminding me of moments in which a person of color is saying, like, well, that's racial, or right? Like, yep. that that is racially motivated. Yep. That is a racist thing. And white people yep. will be like, you're being paranoid, <laughs> right? Yeah. Whereas, you know, the person of color sees clearly, like, no, actually, I'm seeing this very clearly. And it's same with Moody, right? Like, he yeah. has seen a lot. And he's not paranoid. Voldemort is rising again. He's alert. He has constant vigilance, right? Like, and those are, and just because he is sometimes wrong about the specifics, and this is where my metaphor to people of color seeing racism is no longer what I'm going for. Just because he is wrong sometimes in the specifics about a Christmas gift does not mean that he is wrong overall. Which leads, I think, to my question back to you, Matt, which is, First, I'm going to say not a question, but Harry <laughs> knows that it's Voldemort, right? Harry yeah. says to himself after this confrontation with Ron, like, who, no one wants to kill me. Who would want to kill me? And then he's like, Voldemort, yeah. Voldemort would want to kill me, right? Yeah. right. And, and he doesn't write to Sirius and he doesn't go and tell Dumbledore, like, this would be the moment to go tell Dumbledore, I had a dream, like, this yeah. could freaking be Voldemort trying to kill me. Yeah. Yeah. I just think I would be scared enough to go. Not that I would be smart enough or savvy enough to be like, mm. I need to share this strategically. I just think I would be petrified and so would go to McGonagall and be like, hi, can we remember yeah. that Voldemort actually does want to kill me? And my answer I don't want to repeat myself. My answer is in part that he doesn't want to believe sinister forces are at work. But I guess I want to blame the Dursleys. Like, he just has not been raised in a way to believe that if you tell adults something, they're going to listen to you and take you seriously and try to address the problem. Yeah, I think that's, I think all that's right. I agree with all that. I think there's another reason, which is maybe, maybe there's another reason, which is the theme of our episode, which is embarrassment. Yeah. I think he feels like, are people going to say, oh, you're taking yourself too seriously, Harry? Right. That's why I think that's why he doesn't tell Sirius earlier. Right. Right. And Sirius writes him back and Sirius is like, I'm taking this seriously. I'm coming back because something is afoot. Like there are threats on the horizon and the threats are to you. <laughs> right. Right. But Harry is afraid that he will look like exactly what Snape. And at the end of the chapter, Ron accused him of being, which is like a self-important person, by warning anybody. You know, at the beginning of this book, we had the the Death Eaters mark, like, projected over the Quidditch World Cup, right? Like, there have been all these signs. Harry is still worried that if he goes to Dumbledore and says, like, hey, Dumbledore, this is something really important. I think someone's trying to kill me. He's going to look paranoid or self-important or, or whatever. And so it's like embarrassment that keeps him from doing the right thing, which is also in addition to it, the reason he's embarrassed is because of all the things you said, which is that he doesn't want to believe what's the, the terrible is coming. He doesn't want it to be true. And also the Dursleys have trained him to believe that when he says things, he'll be ridiculed. And so all those things go together. But I think embarrassment's part of it. He doesn't want to be seen as a boy who cried wolf by Dumbledore or anybody else in authority at the school. Yeah, the boy who cried wolf. What a horrible story to teach children. I know. Because a wolf shows up. <laughs> <laughs> Wolves sometimes come. I mean, don't lie. 
Right. Don't lie. That's the point of that story. But if you're like, maybe that's a wolf, tell me. I know. I don't like that story. Okay. Matt, thanks. This was such a fun chavruta. This was. I really loved your question in return and, and the discussion that followed. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week's voicemail is from Alicia. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. This is Alicia calling from Washington. I just listened to the episode discussing book four, chapter 12, through the theme of compassion. I love that the team highlighted the idea of pausing as an essential element to practicing compassion. And it made me wonder about the reality of compassion fatigue. There's a serious physical, emotional, and psychological impact that comes from experiencing the stress or trauma of others. And folks who deal with this every day, like those in helping or caring professions, often end up exhausted and burnt out and unable to extend compassion in authentic ways. In this chapter, the adults don't really extend compassion in the ways I wish they would. But I wonder if this is because they're exhausted and burnt out. It's not like Dumbledore has ever taken a sabbatical from fighting Voldemort. But I'm wondering, what if he did? What if he took a break? What if he really treated McGonagall, for example, like a co-leader and shared this burden with her and with others? If he could find a way to take a break from this huge chess match, like a real pause, would he recover a greater capacity for compassion toward Harry and others? 
I mean, I think so. He's so stuck in the never-ending cycle of making complex, morally gray decisions all the time for the greater good that he neglects to compassionately tend to the immediate needs of the children entrusted to his care. So I guess I'd like to offer a blessing to Dumbledore, McGonagall, and Hagrid, and all those who are trying to do the best they can with what they have to respond compassionately to an overwhelming and never-ending tide of other people's needs and other injustices in the world. May they find the rest they deeply need to continue to do the work they've been given to do. I'm wondering if Matt and Vanessa might talk about compassion fatigue and what Harry Potter as a sacred text might say to us. Thanks. Oh, Alicia, I love this voicemail. I am currently reading a book called Rest is Resistance, a manifesto by Trisha Hersey. And I feel like I've now mentioned it on all three of our podcasts, especially because as we do, should I quit? our new podcast, I feel like often what the conversation ends up being about is not necessarily that you should quit, but that you should rest. And I think that we as a society just like really believe that rest is an indulgence and not a necessity. And I think that debunking that myth is the work of <laughs> of now that we've really figured out post-COVID that the the people who are most necessary to our society like need a break nurses teachers service workers we have overly relied on them and they need rest and i i yeah what if dumbledore took a year off and the other thing about taking time off is that it creates capacity in other people and so by creating space you are actually building a bigger team of people who can do that work yeah thanks alicia i think this is a great voice memo also. And also, like Vanessa, I think you share a lot of wisdom and a crucial part of what it means to to be in a caring profession or to care for others. Uh, there's a Roman Catholic bishop who I admire, Oscar Romero, who was martyred and murdered working for people in El Salvador. But one line he has, which I like a lot, and I tell myself often, is he has this line where he says, we are ministers, not messiahs. Mm. That there, we we sometimes believe it's on us to save everything or to do everything. And you're right. If you look at the needs of the world and the needs of the people around us, it can be, it's overwhelming and it's too much for any one person to do. But if you take the needs of the world seriously, you want to do something, right? Yeah. Especially if you look at like, you know, climate change, how can we, how can we do anything to prevent all the stuff? How can any one person, right? And the, the thing, the nourishment I take from that line where ministers, not messiahs is like, oh, actually, it's not my job to fix the whole thing. And good thing, because I can't. Right. But that doesn't mean that, like, the people in front of me are not people that I can care for with my limited capacity as a non-savior, <laughs> right? <laughs> as a person who's not responsible for saving the whole world. And also, I'm one of those people. Like, I'm also one of those people who needs care, and so self-care becomes part of it. I think, you know, Alicia, you asked how we might relate to Harry Potter. I think this is one of the flaws of the whole plan from the beginning, is that they do believe that there is a savior, and they believe it's mm -hmm. Harry Potter. And Dumbledore believes that he's part of the mechanisms of the savior because he's the one who's enabling Harry Potter to be the savior. And that's actually not what saves everybody at the end. It's a shared responsibility that they all take up together in spite of the myth of salvation that accrues to, to Harry. So... Uh, yeah, it's a it's a crucial voice memo. I'm really thankful for it, Alicia, and and it's a good reminder too because we're getting to a busy time of year for me and for others who are in caring professions in winter. 
it tends to be when people get sick, tends to be when a lot of people suffer from emotional and also older people suffer from physical distress. And if you're serving those folks, this can be a really difficult time. So this is a good reminder to us. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Jalen, who is 16 and baked the best cookies. David Dowfit, who was 32. He was a printmaking and ceramic artist and a kind soul. Clint Griffith, who was 52, a father of three, a brother and a friend to many. Florian Pfaff, who was 34, and while died alone, was loved by many. Doris Lucas, who was 89, a mother, grandmother, quilter, and tenacious spirit. Katie Mazzolini, who was 22, an activist, crafter, and bunny mother. Miyoko Ichihashi Potts, who was 75, a beloved grandmother, mother, and wife. May their memories be a blessing. It's now time for us to bless characters in the chapter. Who would you like to bless? I would like to bless Ron. Ron is wrong here. We, we agree that Ron is wrong. And as a good friend, he should, he should believe Harry. And not just as a good friend who should believe his friend, also just as a person who knows Harry pretty well. I think he ought to know that Harry is not a grandstander and doesn't actually look for attention in this way. And so, so I want Ron to believe him. And so this blessing is not for that. <laughs> but <laughs> I also love Ron. Like, we can yeah. love folks who make mistakes and who have bad judgment. And I think Ron really is hurting here. I think he's been... You know, you just think back to the Quidditch World Cup, like he's constantly reminded of his family's poverty or his his social status within the school. He's always a little bit on the outs. He feels a little bit embarrassed all the time. And Harry is a person that he doesn't feel this with ever. And he feels close to Harry. And the opening of this gap between him and Harry just really hurts Ron. And I feel bad for Ron. Even though he's wrong, I feel bad for him. And he's going to go through a rough yeah. a rough couple of weeks. Um, and he's going to be embarrassed when he finds out that he was wrong. And I just, because I care about him, even though he's in the wrong, I want to bless him because all of us have made these sorts of mistakes and have judged people we love in the wrong way and have needed forgiveness later. And so blessings, blessings for Ron this week. Who are you blessing, Vanessa? I'm blessing Harry. I just can't imagine this moment. I feel like there have been moments in my life where I've been the center of attention and I really haven't wanted to be the center of attention. And other people thinking that you like it actually makes it worse and, right, like you don't want to be ungracious. I don't, this is just horrible. And I just like can't imagine going through it at 14. To be sitting somewhere and suddenly be plucked out of obscurity into danger and accusation and it's just a really horrible feeling, and he handles it so with with so much dignity. I just think I would light my hair on fire and be like, "Ah, uh-uh, ah, 
Not me. Yeah. <laughs> Which I wish yeah. you kind of did a little bit more of, but I just want to offer a blessing to Harry for this. And and then his best friend doesn't believe him. This kid's having a really bad day. Yeah. Matt, next week we're reading book four, chapter 18, The Weighing of the Wands through the theme of reluctance. A couple of announcements before we give our thanks. The most important one is that our camp is currently on sale for four more days if you are listening to this on January 26th. So please go to notsorryworks.com and look into our camp. We also have a tarot, herb, and myth class that's starting in just a few days. And we have many pilgrimages on sale. You can find out more at notsorryworks.com. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our engineer is Malika Gampankum. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Alicia for their voice memo to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, and everyone who sent in the names of those they have loved and lost this week. Serious is like, I'm taking this seriously. I'm coming north or whatever. I'm coming to, it's north, right? Most likely. He sends a tropical yeah. bird. Those don't usually come yeah, right, from right. further Things north like, than Scotland. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll rephrase. Uh, 